Hi, I'm Don McNatt again for Audio Nashville, and uh, we've got kind of a special interview here that I'm looking forward to. We're going to be talking to Alan O'Day. Those of you interested in songwriters and what a songwriter's uh, life is about, how he comes to be a songwriter, particularly a successful one, are going to be very interested in some of the things that uh, uh, we'll hear here, I'm sure, from, from Alan O'Day. So, Alan, let me just start off. Uh, uh, I think I always think kind of a, a good place is the beginning. Uh, what, Beginning's what, good. What, what is the what is the thing in your career that you felt like uh, signaled the beginning of your career that, that got you going? Um, probably the third grade when I uh, wrote a, a poem, a love poem to Sharon, the cutest girl at St. Teresa's school. And I walked the probably half, three quarters of a mile to her house and left it on her doorstep. And, or stuck it in her mailbox and I had a crush on her that just wouldn't quit and I couldn't, you know, didn't know what to do about it so I, I kind of wrote this little poem and um, the next day at school she chased me around the schoolyard angry and uh, one of her girlfriends said, why are you chasing Alan? And, and she said, well, he wrote me some old note and I realized that even though it wasn't the reaction I wanted, that there was power in the, the word. And so that put the seed in me. I'm being a little facetious because it wasn't a career, but all those things, when you're that young and vulnerable, they lead you in that direction. Um, just loving music and always tapping my feet and having beats inside my head and lyrics and ideas and combining that with being a teenager, you know, with crushes on unattainable women. And, uh, now, what part of the world were you in at that time? I was in <laughs> hell. No, I was in the, the Coachella Valley, which is a desert area south of Los Angeles, and um, going to school there. Before that, I was, I was born in Hollywood. I'm actually a, a native of Hollywood. And um, um, from an early age, I was interested in sounds and music. I think my idol was probably Spike Jones when I was <coughs> seven oh, or eight yes. years old, you know, with all the sounds and the unexpected uh, sound effects mixed with music. And one of the things that I was fascinated about when I was living in Hollywood was there was a museum there you could go to and you could see the bass fiddle that Billy Barty used to jump out of the back of. Oh my goodness. He, he, was, he was in that fiddle, uh, inside the fiddle in the Spike Jones band and he would come out of it at, at one point in the program and to get to see that fiddle in that museum. Hollywood's an exciting place. What, what an interesting place to grow up. Well, you know, what people think of as Hollywood probably uh, wasn't uh, uh, something that I saw that much of. I, Spike Jones and I had something in common and that's asthma. Uh, although I didn't have it as badly as he did, it was a real problem when I was a kid. And I remember, we lived in Hollywood, we lived in Pasadena, uh, various places, but I remember um, running down the street and hearing my own wheezing mm -hmm. and hearing that there was harmony in the notes of the wheezing mm -hmm. and trying to <laughs> make it work like a sound, like a note, like mm -hmm. a musical note. You know, I hadn't attached, this is asthma, you have a disease or something, you know, but I'd had uh, bronchial pneumonia when I was six, so it left me with a asthma problem. So I just uh, worked with it, you know. Now it's uh, hardly an issue at all because they've got such great medication. But um, back then that was just one of the little vignettes, you know, of, of being a kid. But uh, I was sick a lot in school, and so I was at home, uh, and when I was at home I'd be listening to the radio. 
So those of you familiar with Angie Baby, who had something very intimate to do with the radio, will uh, see a connection there, because I just was listening to the songs and absorbing, you know, on a lot of levels what was going on on the radio. Now, I don't want to move too quickly past that, because just in case anybody knows, you, you were the writer of Angie Baby. I was. and uh, Can you tell us a little story about how that came about? Absolutely. And uh, uh, I always love telling the story because it's one of the songs, my songs I'm most proud of. It took three months to write. And the impetus for it was trying to write a song like the Beatles' Lady Madonna. Um, I know you can't see a connection, but mm -hmm. I was trying to write about a normal girl. And my song was boring. Uh, after a couple of weeks, I was discouraged with it. I was trying to say something that Paul McCartney hadn't said, you know. Lady Madonna, I was so cool, you know. I wanted to write about a lady and being, you know, she was so hip and everything, and maybe she was a young mom, and, 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 and my song just fell apart. And it's frustrating. I mean, you don't know then that you're working on something that's going to be successful. You just know, as you know, you know, you just know you're in a funk about it. So I was uh, playing with my character, so to speak, and she began getting a little weirder. And the more weirder I made her, the more interesting she got. And at one point I uh, went to see a psychologist and showed the psychologist the lyrics I had at that point about Angie Baby. And uh, the psychologist said, uh, this thing you said, you're a little slow, you know. That's the lyric I had at that time. She said, um, the person you're describing is quite complex. And if you're saying you're a little slow, you know, that sounds like somebody who's mentally retarded. So I loved slow, you know, because it was an inner rhyme. And so I went home and tried to get over that and then wrote, you're a little touched, you know. And gradually over the time, this thing gradually came together. And uh, when it became number one, several months later, with Helen Reddy singing it and Jeff, uh, uh, Joe Wizard rather, producing it, um, suddenly three months didn't seem like such a long time. But I know we're jumping all over the map here in terms of time. You know, if yeah, you want me to go yeah. back to being a little kid, I can do it. I just. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested in the little kid because we, we all know that, uh, uh, you know, this has to start somewhere. And you're obviously a person of great talents. And that doesn't start usually when you're uh, over 40. Usually you've come up with that if you've got that kind of talent. But let's jump back to the very first part of your career and the very first professional things that you did. Uh, how, how did you work into this uh, at a point where you decided that, you know, that I'm going to make a living doing this? Um, by being fed up with something else. Uh, I played in bands in high school and had great fun learning the rock and roll songs of that time, you know, 50s stuff. And then wanted to keep playing music, but went to college and made a good attempt at college. And all I wanted to do was do music, but I didn't read music and I didn't have any interest in reading music. I know I was spoiled because because of my ear, I could just find the keys and play uh, what I heard and figure it out on the piano. I didn't use the right fingers or anything, so I was just kind of a quirky, self-taught kid and an only child to boot, so that contributes to, you know, thinking it's all about you anyway. <laughs> so um, after high school, there was college and then uh, some time off from college and then going back to college and uh, pretty miserable. and. Uh, but still playing in bands. So the first professional thing was a band, um, and that led to eventually uh, moving into the L.A. area, kind of again, and hooking up with other musicians and being in bands in L.A. So we played nightclubs uh, in L.A. in the Pasadena area, and I did that for too many years. Um, uh, met a lot of uh, 
interesting people, uh, had a lot of almost success, record companies saying, gee, we'd like to, you know, we're interested, but nothing ever panned out. Now, were you playing your own material in some of those no. bands, or mostly cover songs? No, it was all cover songs. I hadn't really emerged thinking that I would combine my own writing with my music that much. I'd play with ideas at home sometimes, but nothing, nothing really serious, because it's too scary. It's too scary to take that chance, you know? And I'd, I'd write something, and one day it sounded great, and then the next day I'd say, why did I ever write this crap? So um, it was only after I got burned out on the nightclubs that I started uh, writing songs. And then somehow I had the courage um, to take the songs that I was working on to a couple of publishers and find out all the 101 things that were wrong with them. But this one publisher said, you know, I see something in your writing. I think you've got ability. You just need to learn the craft more. And he set about helping me to learn the craft of it. Because I was all just going on emotion and what sounded good and taking what I'd learned to play in nightclubs and tweaking it and turning it around and making it into my, my own, you know, contribution. So I gradually started writing songs in earnest. And, and were you working with a publisher then? Yes. And... Um, he actually got a cut on a song. Do you remember who that publisher was at the time? Yeah, that publisher was E.H. Morris in mm -hmm. their Los Angeles office, and the man who helped me and was one of my first mentors was Sidney Goldstein. Mm -hmm. And he's no longer with us, but as I like to say, he's still in my head when I write a song because he knew how to critique and, uh, and ask the questions that helped me to improve my lyrics. I'm not the first person to say that the best writing is rewriting, but I really believe it, and I live it daily. You know, if you hear something by me, it's usually been revised five, ten times. Not the whole song, but, you know, parts that are weak. With a lot of questions asked of people, what did this mean to you? Mm -hmm. You know, without explaining the song ahead of time, playing the song, and then asking for feedback what it means. This is how I do it, you know. Some people, I guess, just have the knack to do it without that. But for me, I want to get, I want to know ahead of time what it's going to, how it's going to play in Peoria, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and like uh, Angie, baby, uh, what, what's the most interesting story? Oh, Angie. See, I'll go all over the place here. I'm well, you, you mentioned a minute ago <laughs> that that story changed a lot. And as you talked about the rewriting, I'm, I'm, you're reminding me again how much Angie's baby changed because yep. uh, the character needed more development for you. And the weirder she got, the more interesting the song got. So finally she was this person who was either possessed of magic powers or crazy. And... I left it up to the listener to decide. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe. You know, living in a world of make-believe, well, maybe. And you would think that the fellow in the song was going to take advantage of her, but she turns the tables on him. And without meaning to, I had constructed pretty much an odd women's lib song of sorts, you know, mm -hmm. the, the power of a woman. So that fit fine with Helen Reddy, who was coming off of I Am Woman. And... Um, and she still is woman, by the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Helen, uh, I met her at a celebration of her career a few months ago. And gosh, she was so warm and nice and full of praise for me and still very much involved in political thinking and, and the rights of women and uh, um, wrote something beautiful about me in her book about Angie Baby. And uh, so, you know, the song keeps on giving back to me. Well, and we, we, we talk a lot in, uh, uh, in Nashville here uh, about story songs, and uh, yes. th this is like a mini movie. This is a novella kind of that you've written. It's a it it lasts about three minutes, but you've yeah. really really done a cinematic dream here. Yeah, and I'd like to say yes, I know, you know, but <laughs> I didn't know, you know. Um, 
I had the desire to create something that just held together really well. And um, it was only after that that it got cut, that it turned into something, you know, that was, you know, a hit. And when people say to you, you know, that's a hit, and they've heard something, you know, and it hasn't been even played on the air, nobody's cut it, I always look askance, you know, because I'm saying, you don't know that, you know, it's the vagaries of the business, which is even more vagary now than it was then. Now, is in time, was that before or after Undercover Angel? That was before. That was 1974, okay. 75, that uh, Angie Baby was my first number one song. And it, too, sold around two million copies. It was first taken to Cher, but Cher was not cutting at that time. So they took it to Jeff Wald, who was then Helen's husband, and they cut it right away. And I still remember where I was driving near Pasadena, I think it was near the Rose Bowl, and this song came on the radio, and I didn't know what the song was, but it sounded familiar, and it was Angie Baby. And I had that once-in-a-lifetime feeling of saying, my God, my song is playing, you know, and the, the two or three seconds that it took me to figure out what the song was, you know, wondering who that was and, you know, what the song was and then realizing it was my song. I mean, I'm truly blessed to have had that experience. And I hope you were in a convertible because that's the whole fantasy. If you, <laughs> <laughs> if you if hear I, your own song in a nice convertible. Well, you would just levitate and lift right out that's of right. the convertible. You had to be careful with yeah, that. I think I was in a Toyota Corolla at the time, but thank you for the thought. <laughs> well, now, now, Angie, baby, uh, you know, when you get a number one hit, people can uh, pretty much say, yeah, we recognize him as a songwriter now. Yes. And, and, and that, I'm assuming that that really moved you forward. It did. There had been some other things before that. The Righteous Brothers song that was top ten uh, that I co-wrote, which is Rock and Roll Heaven. And by the way, I have a new version uh, called Rock and Roll Heaven 2007, if I may do a commercial, uh, that's on my website, which is alanoday.com. That's A-L-A-N-O-D-A-Y.com. Just got a brand new spiffy website, and uh, I'd love people to come and take a look and take a listen. And I don't want to move too, past, too, too quickly past... Uh uh, rock and Roll Heaven, uh, boy, that song got a lot of uh, got a lot of play. Yes. And for me, uh, uh, and and I think probably other songwriters who may hear this podcast, uh, what a fascinating idea just to think that the Righteous Brothers would sing anything you wrote. Oh, we were such fans when we were playing in clubs. We were such fans of the Righteous Brothers. We'd learn their songs, actually, pretty much note for note. The guitar player learned the solos, and we had a chance through a fluke to back them up once in a club in the valley. And uh, and the guitar player played the solo note for note, and you know to see them turn around and go wow, you know, and give us uh, props, man, that was something great, you know. But uh, did that have anything to do with your connection to get them the song? No, that was years later. They actually had gotten pretty cold. Uh, Rock and Roll Heaven brought them back. Yes. And uh, I remember going to the Universal Amphitheater and sitting there and and hearing him do my song Rock and Roll Heaven. And now one of those guys is not with us. Right. And he's in the new song, am I right? Uh, no, I didn't put Bobby in the new song. Um, I thought about it a lot, mm -hmm. but I had one verse to include the absolute icons of a whole generation that had been missed oh, in yes. the first version. Mm -hmm. So, well, if you want to see who I chose, go to alanoday.com. <laughs> but uh, um, I was very glad of a chance to work with them, and, and we idolized them, the blue-eyed soul thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, you never close your eyes, you know. Yeah, what just, a great piece of material whoa, and wonderfully man. done. Yeah, I think that's one of the most played songs in the world. I think it holds the record. 
for one of the most played songs in the world. I know I still play it. If somebody asks for a song I didn't write, that's one that's going to come out because yeah. it's just such a great song. If it you're going to play songs you didn't write, why not play the great ones? Why not play the best? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And those guys were terrific. But let me move you back now okay. and, and jump. This is an we, interesting interview. Pretty yes. soon I'll be a fetus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we, 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 we've skipped back a little bit, and, and I really wanted to uh, see if we could get the full story to Undercover Angel. Sure. Uh, the chronology of the songs, uh, the, the calling cards, Rock and Roll Heaven, uh -huh. about 1973, 74, Angie mm -hmm. Baby, 74, 75, and then Undercover Angel, 1977. And Undercover Angel was a song I wrote for an artist named Alan O'Day. And it was a weird thing to do because I'd written songs for other people and I did my own demos. I had a little four-track Sony tape recorder in my home and played the different parts and everything. But um, I was now uh, asked to, you know, I, I had this chance to be a recording artist. And so I wanted to write the best for Alan O'Day. So I almost was looking at myself as another person. What kind of notes does he like to sing, you know? <coughs> Sorry. So, uh, you know, in what style? Is he bluesy? What is this about? And so I started writing, and Undercover Angel was one of the first three songs I wrote. Um, uh, I know you're looking for the story of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm right now visualizing myself trying to put that song together. And I've got to say that I always tell songwriters to try to have your title as soon in the process as possible. Did I do that on Undercover Angel? No. No, I painted myself into a corner. You know, I had crying on my pillow, lonely in my bed. Then I heard a voice beside me, and she softly said, what did she say? Wonder is your nightlight. Where did that come from? I don't know. When I was a kid, I had a nightlight. And there I was, you know, getting through the first verse, and now what was the chorus going to say? It was just like, I wanted to hear it in my head, you know. I wanted to hear it on the radio inside my head. And there was no title. So that kind of like, I this is so close to being something cool, I've got to find it, you know, and the wheels turning in my head, and I think I was influenced a little bit by um, um, Charlie's Angels, the fact that Farrah Fawcett uh, and the three gals were on Charlie's Angels, and also by a friend of mine named Patty Dahlstrom, and she had a song that was, I think, got some play, and she did a play on words of Undercover, Undercover Late at Night. He did me wrong, but he did it so right, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So those two words, Undercover Angel, came together. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a little bit of Johnny Rivers in there, too, Undercover Agent, Secret mm -hmm. Agent Man or mm -hmm. something. But um, I just love the sound of it. So that was my, t my title, the first line of the chorus, Undercover Angel, and put it together around that. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about songs is that sometimes songwriters put something that's very different in a song, something that, that turns out to be kind of a special thing, and uh, sometimes it's a hook, sometimes it's not, but it's but it's an obvious change from just the normal song that's going on. And in Undercover Angel, you've got these stops where you say... I said, what? I say, okay. what? Yeah. 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 Like a breakdown. Yeah, yeah. And is, is that just something that you felt like doing on stage, or did you, is that, how, how did that come No, out? no. I, I, I got that from somebody's style of, of doing stuff, probably back in the bl my blues days, you know, where they'd uh, go into breakdowns on stuff, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and, and I think the idea of sections of songs appealed to me, too. Motown music did, mm -hmm. did that sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it just came together that way. And uh, Michael Omardian was co-producer on the song, and Steve Berry, you know, uh, produced, they, they produced it together, and they made my ideas come to life. 
the uh, if you listen real close on Undercover Angel where it says, I said, what? And you hear the, the uh, echo. I said, what, mm-hmm. what, what? There's actually a tape recorder set uh, not at 7.5 and, and not at 15, for those of you who are old enough to remember uh, analog, but I was turning it with my finger. Did we lose it? No, we just shot still pictures by mistake. Oh, okay. Hi. <laughs> so for those of you who remember the analog days, um, I was turning the tape recorder with my hand so that the echo would not be the standard 15 IPS mm-hmm. or 7.5 IPS speed. So it's like, what, 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 what? You know, it's, it, it turns faster. So, you know, we just it was just so much fun to put it together in those days. And who knew it would be number one? You know, my album wasn't ready. It just kept climbing. And passed all those other great songs, and I was the only artist on this boutique label that was a subsidiary of Atlantic, and here I was with a number one song, and trying to get an album together to follow it up. And what do you do when you have a number one song? You're the writer, you're the artist. Well, I bought a Mercedes, but I bought a Mercedes diesel. It just seemed to fit more what I liked. I liked that idea. I went out to a lot of nice dinners. Um, I had a lot to drink. Um, What person are you supposed to become when you have a number one song? I didn't know. I didn't know. And I got to understand why some people can't handle success. I mean, this is minor compared to some of the success like Britney Spears and, you know, some of the people that we see having trouble keeping it together. And I kept it together, but not without having to work hard at it because you try to figure out what should my life be? How should I act like this person who has a number one song? Well, the the secret is to just be who you were before because what goes up comes down. And for some reason, I thank God I had enough of that sense that now so many years after, I get to play here at your house concert and sing Undercover Angel and be in good health, you know, 30 years after the fact Mm -hmm. and and still get the accolades of people who remember the song. So I'm, I'm a really fortunate person. Well, you know, I think something has to do with that, too, sometimes, is that uh, uh, the people who know you when you have a number one hit, uh, they they almost impose how you should behave at that time some, too. Did, that, is, did you experience that at all? Somewhat, um, but... Um, you know, my, my dad was a, a, a famous fiddle player, played, yes, played with Eddie know. Arnold, and one of the things I realized when he uh, would you know, go forth and do things, uh, is that the people that he ran into that knew who he was, uh, they didn't want him to act like a normal person. They were very disappointed if he wasn't some, uh, you know, different, strange person. Yeah, I think I just early on decided to handle that by being humble because then I didn't have far to fall. So if everything turned to poo-poo, it wasn't like I was acting like some uh, person who was better than anybody else. There are people who said I shouldn't talk about my age or the hard parts of my life in between hits, but I pretty much tell everything and share everything with people because it may save somebody else, you know, some of the mistakes I made. But when Undercover Angel was number one, strange things happened. People would recognize me. I did the Dick Clark show, American Bandstand, and somebody looked at me on the street driving by in my Mercedes in Westwood and said, wait a minute, you were on, under- you were on Dick Clark, you know? And I'm smiling and waving, and it's like becoming another persona, so I can relate to what your dad went through. He probably had more pressure being part of a band and and Mm -hmm. playing out more than I did, because people ask me, who did Undercover Angel? And I say, I did, Alan O'Day. Oh, great. Well, who did it? Mm -hmm. Well, what band? 
you know, and I said, LA's finest studio musicians play those parts. And because of that, I was, again, like an only child, I was a one-person unit with that hit. I did go out uh, and tour, but I toured by myself, doing radio stations, you know, waving at people at county fairs, and uh, singing the song, you know, a few times in a few venues, but it was always with a band, another, another band coming in, or mm -hmm. just me playing the keyboard and singing it. So I was spared some of the stuff, you know, that people go through when they, their dreams come true and they're super in the spotlight, you know, all the time. And so I can be in it now or not. I can be either Alan O'Day I want to be. You know, I can be uh, anonymous or I can tell somebody, you know, what I did. But uh, I, one of the things that I particularly noticed about you, Alan, and I think with other people who uh, see you and even meet you briefly, uh, are very aware of it, is that uh, we can talk about some pretty great success in the 70s, uh, but that doesn't at all mean that you have stopped working. You continue to write. You always have new songs. You, uh, This is as much part of your life right now as if you had four number ones. That's true, and thank you for noticing. I think I don't know what else I'd do with myself if I weren't writing and singing and playing. It just means everything to me, that connection. Well, I could spend a lot of time looking at emails. Mm -hmm. uh, go get some frozen yogurt. I don't drink anymore, so that's out. My wife's discovering MySpace can take a lot of time. MySpace, that'll, that'll do it. Um, but, you know, I still would like to uh, do it again. I still would like to have another hit song as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings us to Nashville. And that brings us to Nashville. That mm -hmm. brings Yuka and me to Nashville for me to play the game. And it's, it's a game of life, of learning how to write authentic country songs. I don't know if I'm there yet, but that is something I aspire to do because country music has kept its soul and its personality while a lot of other kinds of music have changed. You know, in Los Angeles, I don't want to generalize, but I mean, there's a lot of things that depend on production. Not that country music doesn't, but the song value remains so strong in country music. And so that's what I gravitate to, is the song value and appreciation of how a lyric is crafted and how a simple melody with simple chords does something elegant and eloquent. That's what I, that's what I want to do. And how, how often do you cut demos these days? I'm more and more cutting them here. I have a little home studio in L.A., so I'll do sketches there, like with mm -hmm. MIDI stuff, you know. Uh, got a Mac, love my Mac, love my digital performer, you know, just mm -hmm. putting stuff together and trying stuff. But um, I got a pal here, Danny Martin, who lives uh, in Nashville and has a studio. And um, I didn't used to fly a lot. And now that uh, I'm older, I've gotten rid of that fear of flying. And my thought used to be that the worst thing that could happen to me, the worst way to die, would be to go down in a plane. That just sounded like the most awful tragedy to me. But I've changed. Um, I now feel that the worst thing that could happen to me would be sitting home and not going anywhere for fear something would happen to me and just dry up and rot. Mm -hmm. That scares the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. So I'm out there playing the game. And if I go down on the plane, uh, hey, you could use this podcast. Say, Look, he predicted his own death. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. No, you know, I mean, we all got to go someday. Mm -hmm. I don't plan on going for quite a few more years, and I'd like to hear a new song by Alan O'Day on the charts, and I'm working toward that. But if it doesn't happen, um, 
I would like to think of myself as somebody who kept working at it. Well, we've, we've heard some of your late material and uh, some of the things that you're doing right now. So, I'm not sure if I so, like the way you say late material. <laughs> well, what I mean is what you've <laughs> done lately. Uh, uh, so we've heard songs that you've written since 1977. Yes. And, yeah. uh, uh, and, and we've heard uh, enough of them to know that uh, there's very possibly uh, uh, still some Alan O'Day hits. And, Thank you. Uh, and a lot of uh, Alan O'Day music, it, it is an absolute pleasure to see you perform live. Uh, we really enjoy it so much. We're, we're pleased that you've joined us here tonight for the thing that we do uh, uh, at this concert. Yes. But, uh, uh, but we've had a chance to see you a, a bit over the past few years. Sometimes you come here and play the Bluebird Cafe. Yes. And uh, uh, I'll just I'll just comment, if I may, that uh, uh, some of the people that I think have, have had the most success, uh, I've, I've got this theory from a phrase that I heard one time that uh, uh, money chases art. And instead of uh, art chasing money, and yeah. I, and I think sometimes if you're if you're trying to have just a hit, uh, that the art suffers. But when it's if it's somebody like you who loves the process so much, yes, that you're constantly involved in the process, and and the, and the creating of the songs is the Im important thing. Uh, the, people who want to have hits, they chase down that kind of material. Yes, um, I I love the process, uh, and. That's something nobody can take care, take away from you. Um, you know, when, when a song goes out in the marketplace, it becomes a business situation. And you know, as I know, that there's a lot of great songs out there that mm -hmm. are not seeing the light of day these days. Mm -hmm. There's more and more independent music, which means more choices, but there's less of the top 10, the top 40, and everybody gravitating and magnetized to, you know, listening together to those songs that were picked by record companies and, and, and promoters and like it used to be, you know. There's a lot of things about the music business I miss, but I think it's going to shake out into something where there's a lot more equal opportunity, even if there's less, you know, major stardom around. Well, we, we had a situation uh, uh, in the 70s and in the 80s where sometimes a, a record label would have 20, 25 acts on their roster and they'd keep them all out working. Then at some point somebody made a decision, let's see if we can make that same amount of money with four acts or mm -hmm. with five acts. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of cut down the variety of, of what we hear. Yes, um, at least on the radio. But now mm -hmm. here comes the internet. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of the great equalizer. You know, the best mm -hmm. of us and the worst of us as a people are on the internet and the best and worst of us as, as songwriters and musicians. I mean, you know, there's total crap out there. Right. But then there's some undiscovered gems, you know, and I think that that broadening of the marketplace, you know, mm -hmm. the more egalitarian, I guess is the word, way that you can find your own stuff rather than having it spoon fed to you is eventually uh, going to be better for more people. Well, I'm going to recommend to anyone listening to this that uh, they check out their radio stations and listen for an Alan O'Day song because <laughs> I have a feeling that one's coming. But in case it doesn't hit you fast enough, the Internet is out there, and you can go to alanoday.com and hear these right now. And uh, uh, these days it's possible to have a hit just because people love the songs and found you. Yes. So we're glad we found you, and I really want to appreciate you taking the time with us here on Audio Nashville. And we will wrap it up now, and, but uh, uh, thank you so much for the great music, for the great career that you've had, and for the time you spent with us today. And if you just joined us, I want you to know you've been listening to Alan O'Day. Thanks, Don.